Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Elaine. Extreme. Valeria. Barovia. Birkenfield. Bomania. Davinina. Imaginary countries. Bovinia. Cardonia. Dawsbergen. Easy to invent. Fredonia. Genovia. The best names sound very plausible. Montalbanco. Graustark. Karaslavia sounds real. Rutania. Sylvania. That's a place, isn't it? Marzovia. Karaslavia. Or maybe it was before the breakup of the Soviet Union. Karlsberg. Carpathia. Grand Fenwick. Northland. Novia. Or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Thermosa. No, wait. Ruritania. 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 I've definitely heard of Ruritania. You may well have too. Not because it is or was a real country. It's not. But because Ruritania is the imaginary country. It's not the first one by any means. Writers and storytellers have been inventing places for, well, as long as there have been stories. Fairy tale kingdoms, utopian islands, lost worlds. But Ruritania is different. It's the setting for a novel first published in 1894 called The Prisoner of Zenda. It was an immediate bestseller and it became a template for imaginary country narratives. It spawned countless knockoffs and imitations, parodies, and reworkings. The fictional country gave its name to a whole genre of literature. The Ruritanian romance was born. You know the way after the Da Vinci Code came out, there was a period where you couldn't move in a bookshop without falling over another thriller involving secret codes? Well, it was a bit like that in the 1890s, except with imaginary countries. Suddenly, everyone was setting their novel in a Laurania or a Graustark. And we haven't really stopped. From Kumar to Zubrovka to Tazbekistan, we like making up countries. We do it for a lot of different reasons, and as you might expect, why and how we create imaginary countries says quite a lot about us. But for so much of this, we owe a debt to Ruritania. So it, it's a so-called adventure romance of, of the 1890s. Uh, once an incredibly popular book. Uh, now maybe not quite so well known, I think. People may have seen the film versions, or there's been sundry TV adaptations, but I don't think quite as many people now know the, the original novel. This is Professor Nick Daly, Professor of Modern English and American Literature in University College Dublin. He provided me with the list of countries you heard at the beginning of this episode, and it's just a small selection. He's been collecting them for a project he's working on exploring the Ruritanian romance. I went out to UCD to talk to him about Ruritania, and as we sat beside this amazing huge Prisoner of Zenda board game he bought online, he told me about the book. It's basically an adventure yarn uh, written by uh, a young barrister, uh, Anthony Hawkins, under the pen name Anthony Hope, uh, and it, it describes the holiday adventures, as it were, of Rudolf Rassendl, who goes to this small, apparently German-speaking statelet, Ruritania, uh, and there, because of his physical resemblance to the actual king of the country, he becomes embroiled uh, in, in a whole series of adventures. 
Prisoner of Zenda was hugely popular, and as with any bestseller, it's both very intriguing and very difficult to work out why this was the case exactly. It's really hard hard to know um, why exactly one one novel kind of catches the popular imagination and takes off. There's a few things going on, I think. One thing I think is that you know it, it is just it's it's a good read. It's it's a short, lively novel. Uh, action-packed, you know, the chapters move along very quickly from, from one kind of crisis to the next. It's it's, it's that kind of uh, adventure fiction. Rassendil himself is kind of re- reasonably kind of engaging as a, as a central character. Um, but that only gets you so far, I think. You know, there are a lot of novels that are, that are fast-moving and kind of reasonably engaging. Um, why this particular story of an imaginary German statelet um, and its political turmoil, why that should take off, it's actually quite hard to pin down. But there are certain things we can look at if we put the novel in the context of when and where it was written. I think the reasons for the the novel's sort of own success, I would argue, have to do with the way in which it provides a sort of curious mirror image of of Britain itself. Uh, Britain itself also, you know, sort of a Germanic monarchy um, in in this period, um, and one that was kind of unevenly developed. Um, Ruritania in the novel is is quite sort of a backward country. Um, Britain itself, obviously, not a backward country in the 1890s, but still, you know, still a monarchy, still with kind of pockets of feudal tradition there alongside um, great industrial power. In in, in a weird way, I think, Ruritania is a sort of distorted version of, of Britain, but one in which adventure is still possible. So there are duels and sword fights, and it all seems like an Arthurian romance, even though it's set in the more or less contemporary 1890s. And it's that contemporary setting that's a big part of the appeal. It's a fairy tale with gallant men on horseback and castles and beautiful princesses, but one that's accessible now, not in the distant past. But then it's not fully a fairy tale either. Rassendil's job as king is often arduous and frequently boring, It's not all sword fights and daring rescues. It has that idea of um, somebody relatively ordinary, even though though our central character is actually quite posh. (laughs) But he he, he becomes a king. There's that sort of fairy tale transformation. He finds the kind of fair princess. But unlike a fairy tale, of course, it it is a sort of an adult ending in which they both renounce pleasure for duty. It's quite sort of, you know, you can have your fairy tale and then it's taken away from you at the end. And I think... That actually works quite, quite, quite powerfully. The other reason the novel became a classic was that it was taken up very quickly in popular culture. It's very adaptable. It was almost immediately made into a stage play and was a huge hit. The scope for elaborate sets, sword fights and look-alike characters made it an easy fit for the stage. And then later there were lots of screen adaptations, the first in 1913. All of them with plenty of swashbuckling and dashing villains. I cannot get used to fighting with furniture. Where'd you learn it? That all goes with the old school tie. Well then, here's your last fencing lesson. So there were reasons specific to the time and place and content of The Prisoner of Zenda which made it so popular. But Anthony Hope clearly uncovered a desire in readers for this new genre which Ruritania would give its name to. It's important as well to understand what Ruritania is not. You know, it's not a historical novel or a utopia, not a lost world or a fantasy world. And as we've seen, it's not quite a fairy tale either. There's nothing that's that's not fairly realistic, really, in, in Ruritanian fiction. It, they are sort of adventure yarns 
without too much in the way of a real stretch of the imagination. You know, Rotania actually is a fairly plausible place, but there are no kind of surviving dinosaurs um, or you know lost tribes or anything like that. It, it uh, or magical, magical queens ruling over um, subject peoples. Um, you're staying fairly close to, to 1890s kind of European reality, but it's just given us a slight kind of twist so that it's it's this kind of little pocket kingdom um, that that allows uh, the adventurer to loom quite large. The country's small, so the people can be bigger. I think is, is partly how how it works as a as an adventure. There's something attractive about all that, you know, because it, because it seems like you know real adventure is still possible. That the map hasn't hasn't all been kind of filled in with with, with civilization. There's some, you know, um, you can be a real hero. You can be a real heroine in the, in, the, in, the, in this kind of imaginary space. Psychologists, child psychologists, assume that the the the, the making up of imaginary spaces is a sort of a, a fairly innate thing. The paracosms, they call them apparently, um, because it, the the extent to which children come up with little imaginary kingdoms of their own uh, is, is is that extensive that they've actually kind of labelled it as a thing. So, Ruritania also taps into a universal experience. It's a paracosm, an imaginary world with features in common with everything from fairy tales and children's stories to fantasy and science fiction. But when we create an imaginary country, we give a very clear insight into our own country too, our own society and what we believe. In the case of Ruritania, there's the nostalgia for simpler times, a longing for an adventure, for sword fights and horse riding in a world which now had high-powered automatic weapons and early types of cars. There were also the anxieties about the modern world, a world which was losing its mystery and exoticism as it became mapped and controlled and colonised by Western powers. Where was an adventurer to go? As we move into the 20th century and to the present, Imaginary countries keep reflecting our desires and anxieties and prejudices. Ruritania itself started to move further east as time went on, and it was adapted in new media. Oh, and if you want to see where Ruritania is exactly, I've put a map on the website, so it's my approximation of where it might be. You can have a look. So what was originally a German statelet sort of shifted to the Balkans for later film versions because, you know, that was a messy and politically unstable part of Europe as the century went on. That's how imaginary countries tend to work. Ideally, you need somewhere that your audience is pretty unfamiliar with. You know, they assume you've made it up, but they may not be completely sure. And there's an art to coming up with good names. I recently stumbled upon the Mitchell and Webb BBC miniseries The Ambassadors, It's set in Tazbekistan, which I think is a great name for an invented country. I think probably Stan in the 21st century is the Onia of the 19th century. I mean, not only are there lots of countries ending in Stan, not to mention all the various Stan regions and provinces, but they're all geographically close to each other. And most importantly, they're pretty unfamiliar geographically and culturally to your average European or American. Afghanistan is the notable exception for all the wrong reasons. The opening credits of The Ambassadors sums up a lot of this. It's a short, animated sequence which moves from London, where we see red buses and Westminster, to the English countryside, and then France and Switzerland and Italy fly past with the usual cultural references to wine and the Alps and skiing. And then we move to Greece and see the Parthenon, and then Turkey, which is just all rugs. Afghanistan is people launching a missile. Tajikistan is a desert with decrepit nuclear facilities. Kazakhstan, more desert, but with lots of oil wells. 
And finally, we move over a mountain range to an even more remote desert, and we see the British Embassy in the country of Tazbekistan. The show makes use of Western ignorance of a huge part of the world. It uses lazy stereotypes, mostly for comic effect. But it also highlights the contradictions and difficulties and cynicism of British diplomacy abroad, where sales of military technology will always come before human rights, and propping up a brutal dictator is preferable to political instability. There are lots of other reasons for inventing countries. It gives the writer creative freedom, certainly, but it also allows for indirect criticism. You know, if you're trying to talk about more sensitive political issues, it's often easier just to use a fictional country. So in the TV show The West Wing, for example, you've got Equatorial Kundu, an amalgamation of various West African countries, and Kumar, a sort of blend of Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think Kumar is a particularly good name for an imaginary country. You can argue that it makes sense to talk about Kumar and not Saudi Arabia, for example, because the focus of the show is what's happening to the characters in the White House. But then again, it does remove a sense of responsibility for what you say. If you really want to make a political statement about a country whose politics you disagree with, then make it about that country. Or, you know, you can just invent countries out of pure ignorance. The recently created country of Nambia springs to mind. Whatever the reason, however the country is created and populated, whether it reveals our ignorance and prejudices, or whether it's political, critical, or thought-provoking, there's a debt to a Victorian romance novel, and to Ruritania, that small, feudal, German-speaking monarchy, somewhere in Europe. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you for listening. If you like books and literature, and I think that's a fairly safe bet if you're listening to this show, then stay here for another minute. I want to tell you about a great event coming up. I also wanted to tell you about the Patreon page I have for this show. It's at patreon.com forward slash WTTE. And there are links on my website as well. If you're a regular listener and you feel like the show is maybe worth buying me a cup of coffee a month, then become a patron of the show. You would have my undying gratitude and it would allow me to start making longer term plans for better and better episodes. Oh, and I will also invent a country and name it after you. Special thanks this week to Professor Nick Daly. You can read about his work and research on the Words to That Effect website, which, by the way, is wttepodcast.com. You'll also find more about Ruritania, lots of articles, all the previous episodes and more. So go have a look. There's also a link to the music for this week's episode, which was provided by the wonderful overhead The Albatross. It's from their album Learning to Growl. I highly recommend you go check them out. Oh, and thanks to Sarah, Dermot, Katrina and Kleena, who were cajoled into reading out imaginary countries at the beginning of this episode. And a particular thanks to Martin and Milo, my 92-year-old grandfather and my two-year-old son. So the event I mentioned earlier is the Dublin Book Festival. It's a really good event. I've been in previous years and it's on again this year from the 2nd to the 9th of November in Temple Bar in Smock Alley and a few other venues around the city as well. They've got readings, debates, book launches, workshops, basically everything you'd expect at a great book festival. There's a really nice space upstairs in Smock Alley as well with a cafe and an area for kids as well. Um, My toddler really loved it last year, mostly for the balloons if I'm honest, but he's a bit older this year, so I'm hoping there's going to be more reading involved. So go check it out. I highly recommend it. All the info is at www.dublinbookfestival.com. 
And that's it for another week. The show is on Facebook and I'm on Twitter at CED Read. Let me know what your favourite imaginary country is. Hertz of Slovakia, Mulvania, San Pedro, Shangri-La, Ukbar. See you in two weeks. <laughs>